I'm your host, Foster Chamberlain. Today I'm joined by Miriam Shadish, an associate professor at Ohio University, to discuss queenship in medieval Portugal. So Miriam, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. So I thought uh, to start out, could you just summarize for us how this kingdom of Portugal got started? Well, Portugal was a part of the Kingdom of Leon. So Iberia, Spain, northern Spain, Christian Spain was multiple kingdoms and Leon was a vast kingdom in the western part of the peninsula. And Portugal was the uh, a marriage endowment for one of the daughters of King Alfonso VI. Her name was Teresa and she was married to a guy named Henry of Burgundy. Um, he's known that way anyway and uh, he was a French uh, nobleman adventurer person and uh, they were given this county as her marriage portion over time they were able to kind of pull it away from Leon um, they had various political and, and opportunities really um, and she herself was really instrumental in, in doing that so it seems like from the very beginning these queens and this figure of Teresa in particular uh, was very important so could you tell us a bit more about who she was and her political career? Sure. Um, she, she was, as I mentioned, the daughter of Alfonso VI and one of his, uh, uh, probably his concubine, a woman who was not a queen. Um, her name was Jimena Munoz and she, uh, she Teresa, um, was uh, still, you know, a really important daughter, an important person and, as I said, married to Henry of Burgundy. When uh, she was a fairly young woman, she was about 14 years old when she married him, and in the early 12th century, she and Henry started kind of angling for, um, you know, more power at the Leonese court. And um, there were a series of events. Her father died. Her sister Oraca inherited the throne of Leon. Um, she began to she and, and Henry, but then Henry died. They began to negotiate how to kind of claim power for themselves independently of of Leon. I guess she would have been in her late 30s and 40s. Um, she had a bunch of little kids, the three-year-olds, uh, three three young children. With Henry, um, she actually married or maybe just, um, I guess we'd say, hooked up with um, <laughs> a, a, a Galician nobleman, an important guy, um, had some more children with him. So very much acting like a king, right? Just yeah. sort of having these relationships and, and, and doing these things. And over time, um, in the 1120s, began to call herself queen. Um, she had a number of altercations with her sister in Leon, and eventually with her son. As he became an adult, he wanted power for himself, and he um, ejected his mother from Portugal, and she died a couple years later. So she, she had this very dramatic career, very short-lived career, 10 years or so, mm -hmm. as, as, as even fewer, maybe eight, um, as queen. And I just should probably point out that I'm still working on all this, right? I'm still learning about all the things that she did and, and, and what, um, what there is to be known about her, her life. So. Mm -hmm. Well, it sounds like an amazing uh, story. Yeah. So were there other things as well that she was doing um, to bolster her reign, such as patronage and was she doing so differently from what male monarchs of this period were doing? That's a great question. I, I, I think that really she's not doing things very differently from male monarchs. Mm -hmm. she, she's a vulnerable person, right? And so we, we see her 
fostering relationships with other nobles, trying to you know giving them giving them rewards for things, giving them um, positions of power, so that she can encourage her own power. Right? Um, she was a patron, although I don't have a very clear vision of the kinds of things that she patronized. It's much clearer for me for later later queens, mm -hmm. but she did um, have a relationship with a guy named. Um, Variously, John of Seville or Juan of Juan de Sevilla, who was a an intellectual and a writer, and she um, he, he wrote for her a little section of a um, a medical treatise. It just suggests to me that she had these people around her at her court, right? She had intellectuals and probably artists and um, certainly a lot of clergy, a lot of religious people around. She had conflicts with the clergy quite a bit, um, sort of struggling for power with the various bishops of Porto and Braga and, and places like that. But she was eager, right, to claim her power and I think she used the tools at her disposal. We don't know a lot about what she did. I know that she attacked the church of, uh, physically attacked um, the church of, of Porto at one point and had to um, uh, restore it, right? So that's wow. patronage in a way, but sort of, you know, <laughs> maybe maybe not what we would expect. Yeah. Wow, that's pretty amazing. And um, now my understanding is that eventually her son, Alfonso Enriquez uh, managed to seize power from her. So how did he um, do that and, and how was he able to justify taking power from his mother? He was a young man. Um, he was probably, this happened in 11, summer of 1128. There was a battle, the Battle of Salmamed, which is often designated as sort of the start of Portugal, you know, this really big important part. Historians write about Teresa as a rebel. Um, which is ridiculous. I mean, I'm sorry, but <laughs> you know that she she was she was a person in power. Her son had the support of um, a, a lot of important Galician noblemen and some clergymen. And Teresa, as I mentioned, had this relationship with this other powerful man. And I think that there was a lot of discomfort with that, right? Mm -hmm. A lot of resentment and anxiety about his his power. Um, and I think that that Alfonso was supported then by a large contingent of people. They were willing to go and go to war, and so there was a battle, and um, the queen and her husband or lover uh, fled Portugal, went back across the Minho to the north. I haven't actually, to be honest, discovered anything that articulates concern about her gender, but you have to assume that that was a justification that was made for her behavior. Her sister, or for, for challenging her. Mm -hmm. Her sister in, um, in Leon had a very similar pattern of behavior with a series of lovers and children out of wedlock, and she was treated, uh, she was judged quite harshly for that. And we have much much more chronicle information about that, that scenario. So it, if you can sort of extrapolate a little bit from Araka's case, you can imagine what Teresa was exposed to. Um, mm -hmm. But it's not actually so clear in the, in the documentation. So now, Alfonso Enrique also had a queen consort, is my understanding. Right. Um, so what was uh, the power that she had, and was that different from someone who was a reigning queen like Teresa? So she's interesting. I have been working a lot on her right recently, so I'm a little bit clearer on some details. She was uh, from Savoy. Her name was uh, Matilda. 
or in Portugal, Mafalda. And um, she was the, uh, the daughter of um, uh, the Count of Savoy. So she married Alfonso Enrique when she was maybe 10. <laughs> she was very, very young. And um, he was trying to, you know, use, I'm, I mean, I think this is what they all did, but he was using marriage to sort of help solidify his status as a man, as a king. Um, he, about the same time that he married her, he starts calling himself king. He mm -hmm. marries her in 1140. So quite some time after he's driven his mother out of, the, out of the kingdom. And Mafalda almost immediately began bearing children, and she had a number, it's not entirely clear how many, but at least six children in about um, 10 years, and she died in 1156. So she was queen of Portugal for 16 years and had all these children. She was wow. very young when she died. And we know a lot about her, um, her experiences as a mothering queen and as a pregnant queen because she suffered terribly in childbirth. And these stories get um, reiterated in various hagiographies and things about the saints that surrounded her. Um, my favorite story is that she had a, um, she requested the, the, the relic of a saint called Saint Marina, which is probably also meant to be Saint Margaret, who is the patron saint of women and childbirth. And uh, there's, there's a whole historiography there about this saint and whether she's that saint or the other saint. But nonetheless, um, Mafalda got, was given a piece of this saint's skull, a relic, which she had encased in silver. So a silver head reliquary, mm -hmm. which she carried with her everywhere she went. <laughs> and and there, there's another story about her going to ask um, this particular saint, Saint Teotonio, who was an important founding saint in Portugal and was a contemporary of, of Alfonso Enrique and Mafalda, um, coming to see him because she wants his blessing, she wants his help, she's suffering, she's worried, and he mm -hmm. says, you can't come in here, no women allowed in, in Santa Cruz, right? So um, he, he, there was this really interesting boundary that's drawn. So she was very young, she um, had these problems, she did her duty as a um, mother, mm -hmm. right, reproducing children. Um, and she really didn't live long enough, I think, to have a great impact in other ways. One thing that's important about her, though, is that she demonstrates for us how Alfonso Enrique understood um, the organization of monarchy in terms of family. So all these kings across Iberia, and queens, uh, reigning queens at different times, when they issued a charter, they always did so unacum, together with, right, mm -hmm. their spouse and maybe their children. And so they always present the family as a kind of um, a front in any action that they take, or almost any action. And so Mafalda, right from the beginning, is incorporated into that documentary record from Alfonso Enrique. And um, because she was so young, I think it's hard to say that she was had a great deal of agency in that document production, but um, she still, there was this expectation that she was an important part of the monarchy in that way. I thought to conclude this first section, maybe you could speak a little bit more about that, um, about what this idea of queen really meant in the early uh, kingdom of Portugal, and if you think that differs from how we usually understand the idea of queen today. There, there are a number of complicated parts to this, and one of them is that, um, to begin with, the historiography surrounding Teresa, the first queen, mm -hmm. um, is uh, vexed, to say the least. And even though she called herself queen, 
and the Pope called her a queen, and the nobles around her, and her son who booted her out called her a queen, right? <laughs> yeah. Historians don't like that, and they'll refer to her as the countess, or the countess queen, or they'll put queen in scare quotes, because it doesn't fit their vision of what a queen should be. Um, and some of that has to do with uncertainty about what Portugal was. Was it, a, was it a realm? Was it separate? Was it a rebel county? You know, people are, I think, uncertain about that. I'm pretty certain that she was a queen. She called herself a queen. Everybody else thought she was a queen. That was mm -hmm. fine. Alfonso Henrique's wife fits in the mold of what we expect, right? And when I ask my students, what is a queen? They'll be like the wife of the king, you know, that's their, their standard answer. Um, but the interesting part of the story is that Alfonso Enrique himself called all of his daughters queen, right? And he not only named them Regina, but he also, I mean, Regina Teresa, Regina Mafalda, Regina Sancha, but he gave them roles, right? Gave them things to do in the functioning of the monarchy. And so again, you know, his, the historiography about this is a little bit um, uncertain. People have uh, sort of dismissed this as, oh, well, this is just Portuguese idiosyncrasy, you know, and, and, and it's just something weird the Portuguese do. And, and you do see examples of what we would think of as princesses being called queen on occasion elsewhere in Iberia, um, but not consistently, not like it is here. And so when I got into this, I thought, well, this is this wacky thing that's happening here in these documents. But the more I've studied that, I've studied these women, and I see how the, the, what the kings are trying to do, and because they're trying to establish a, a realm, you know, they're trying to, to establish their own legitimacy. Um, it's really important for Alfonso Enrique, and then his consecutively his son, to draw a strong um, line back to Teresa mm -hmm. and her, and to legitimize her in some way so that they're legitimate. And they also are using the queen, whether it's the queen wife or the queen mother or the queen daughter, the queen is an important um, collaborator in their, the operation of their, of their realm. Right. Um, so um, this is this is my research. This is what I'm trying to understand. But it is different from what we would expect. Uh, so we'll take a little pause here, and then we'll take a look at if this idea of queen changes at all as we uh, move forward in the, the history of medieval Portugal. program. So how about the queens during the reign of Alfonso Enrique and then also his son Sancho the first? You mentioned them a little bit, but did they continue to have important roles in the monarchy? Yeah, so we'll skip to the next generation. We'll talk about okay. Sancho the first. Yeah. I mean, I mean, um, Alfonso Enrique had um, one daughter in particular who he relied on. Her name was Teresa. Very, <sighs> it's very, there's a lot of Teresas. Um, and um, 
she was uh, really his right hand along with his son Sancho who had become king and eventually right before her father died she married um, Count Philip of Alsace she went to Flanders and she became the Countess of Flanders where she was super successful and a lot of people think that that's because she had all this experience as a reigning woman. She continued to call herself queen, even as the Countess of Flanders, so mm. she never gave up that identity there. Um, but her brother became the next king, Sancho I, and he had, uh, he married a woman, Dulce of Aragon, and they had a number of children. Um, and um, eventually Dulce would die, and then he, Sancho, um, took consecutively a couple of uh, women as his, his, what the Portuguese call um, baragais. So they were baragas, or um, a baraga, plural baragais, mm -hmm. right, baraganas, so concubines. And these women um, had more children with the king. So um, when he, uh, he, when his wife died, and she, she was, we know a little bit more about her patronage. She, she um, uh, supported the building of some marinas and things and some bridges and she and her husband gave chalices to churches and, and promoted monasteries and, and that sort of thing. So very typical mm -hmm. kinds of, of patronage. At some point um, they had married one of their, their oldest daughter, Teresa, to uh, the King of Leon who happened to be her first cousin. And for political reasons, but also religious reasons, they were too closely related, that marriage uh, failed and Teresa came back to her father's court. Um, soon thereafter, her mother died and she kind of stepped into her mother's role as a, as a patron and as managing the, the family. Um, of course, her father had these then sexual relationships with these other women. Mm -hmm. um, and, but those women were not queens, right? Teresa was doing the queen's job. When her father died in 1211, he left this will that is really peculiar, and there's a, there's a lot to be understood about this, this will because probably it had earlier iterations that are gone, right, mm -hmm. that would explain some of its strangeness. But in the will, he um, left um, a great deal of money to all of his children, to his oldest son, he left the kingdom and his um, five best horses and his grandfather's ring and all these kinds of things. But to Teresa and her sister Sancha, um, he left these really important castles and as well as money and all this kind of stuff. And he knew this would be a problem. He got his son to agree to abide by the will, but that was not to be. Um, there was a civil war, there was a big breakdown here, and in the long run the women lose and the the Pope gets involved. It's a big mess. Mm -hmm. But what's interesting is to try to understand what was Sancho trying to do here. And I really think that he was setting up his son to kind of have a team, right, that would include his sisters who were these experienced women and who represented the royal family. They represented, um, one of them, Sancha, was probably a vowed virgin. She, had, she was a religious woman and mm -hmm. she represented some religious authority for the crown that was an important role that women could play um, historically in, in Iberia. I think that um, Sancho had some vision of these women helping their brother rule. Now, he was married um, to a Castilian woman, Baraka. He had a number of children. 
he had a clear vision of his, his own about how he would rule and what would happen there. Um, and he was not interested in, in this sharing of power with his sisters. But it, so it's a really strange uh, moment. The more, the more I study it, the less I understand exactly what it was that Sancho was about because it seemed like a, um, a really um, sort of precarious uh, scenario that he had established, and it, it didn't work. Mm -hmm. um, but it's, it shows us something about maybe what the queens were supposed to be able to do and the importance of these daughters. And he, Sancho, had seen his own sister, Teresa, the woman who became the Countess of Flanders, operate in this way in the family. He was used to having, you know, a partner, uh, right. a sibling partner. So. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's interesting how much power he was willing to, uh, to give to them. To give them. In the, in the next generation, the next king, Sancho II, um, did not marry for a long time. And when he did marry, he married someone that was unacceptable to the entire nobility. Um, in the end, that king was deposed. So um, and his brother came in. His brother was, uh, had, had been in France for most of his life, um, had a career up there. And when he came, he uh, really changed a lot. He was a, a reforming king, and he changed a lot about law, and he changed a lot about administration, and he did not call his daughters queens. <laughs> uh, <laughs> he like uh -huh. stopped that. So um, um, that's that was sort of the end of that experiment. Can we backtrack a little bit here? And um, you said that eventually there was a conflict, and Sancho the First's daughters were were not able to keep these castles that they mm -hmm. gained control uh, uh, over. So could you tell us a little bit more about that? How exactly did that happen? The father died mm -hmm. in March. And in the late spring, the sisters contacted the papacy to get confirmation of the father's will. And the pope at the time, Innocent III, um, issued that confirmation. And then it seems that over the summer, there was um, some conflict. There was military you know, engagement around these castles. At eventually, Teresa's former husband, Alfonso IX of Leon, arrived with armies, which also included some of her other siblings, her brothers and half-brothers. So there was a much larger sort of movement mm -hmm. um, to sort of secure her power there, Teresa and Sancho's power. Um, the women raised armies as best they could. They issued foral charters, which were um, basically, it's hard to describe it, they're, they're essentially municipal codes. They're codes that um, give privileges to communities in exchange for things like military support, mm -hmm. right? And for raising up um, militia and things like that. So they did that. They hunkered down in their castles and, and um, were, there was a, a lot of back and forth and then eventually uh, Alfonso II was able to get the papacy to change its mind about supporting the women and overturn the will. His claims were that his father was insane, that he had lost his mind, that you couldn't alienate the patrimony, you couldn't do this sort of thing. Um, I, I think that he was not, that was not, I agree with historians who say that was not a claim made in good faith because there were plenty of other parts of the will he was perfectly willing to accept, you know. <laughs> um, so he, he, you know, it, it really was a stalemate. Um, mm -hmm. And in the end, I think that the women just uh, could not get anything from their 
brother and probably lost some military support from their followers. The um, there's a there's a vague moment to me the 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 real conflict is over fairly quickly um, within a year or two, mm -hmm. but it really is only in the next generation and in the. Um, uh, when Alfonso's son becomes king, Sancho II, that he settles with his aunts, and we have a great big charter that lays out exactly um, what their rights are. And basically, they're allowed to hold the castles for their lifetime, but then they revert back to the to the um, crown. So Alfonso II mm -hmm. was, was this king. Right. Okay. Yeah. And uh, so then you said that he ceased to call. Ah, women no, the, the third. The th it's Alfonso the third who ceases to ah, call. Okay. Alfonso so Alfonso the second actually does call. He has one daughter, mm -hmm. um, Leonor, and uh, she will leave the kingdom and go off and marry. I think uh, to Denmark actually. But she, in 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 his general, you know, those same charters where he he acts with his family, um, she will sometimes be Regina. You know, so there's that habit there, which is, mm -hmm. of course, the chancery as much as it is the king himself, right? It's it's the habit of of his of his bureaucrats. Um, right. But um, uh, he does do that. It's Alfonso the Third who comes and replaces his brother, who's he's a usurper essentially, um, who really really does not do that anymore. Okay. Um, and so that's the middle of the 13th century. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. So even at a time when they lost that title, did women still have uh, important roles in the monarchy in this period? Absolutely, and and I, my colleagues in Portugal who work on these later queens, you know, mm -hmm. in, in the 13th and 14th centuries, really have a lot of interesting things to say about how these women managed their property, how they were very wealthy, they were great patrons, they were also mothers, and they did that reproductive work that is really important. Mm -hmm. um, they were also advisors to their husbands and to their sons, so they, they acted in a way that we see European Queens act elsewhere okay and and we can use that kind of comparative um, we can we can make those comparisons to understand what they were doing I think it in good ways so you look at what ha what's happening in England or France and you can see that these Queens are doing those those kinds of things mm -hmm. um, they um, represent international relations with you know Aragon or Castile or England um, they have power and, and they even have authority, but they fit a more, our typical expectations. There is the potential that remains there always, because this is Iberian, um, for daughters to inherit the throne, but there's just no opportunity for that. And in the meantime, the daughters are not called queens. So um, it sounds like in this period, the role of the queens becomes more similar to other kingdoms in Europe Whereas at the beginning of the Kingdom of Portugal, they actually had a greater role than what you see elsewhere in Europe. I don't. Yeah. Um. Some of the. So I think more women had roles as queens. So we have an expanded category of queenship because those first queens that were the wives, Mafalda, who was the young woman who you know had all those children and died, mm -hmm. uh, Dulce. They, those women fit what we would expect for married queenship, right? So they're, they're continuing a long trajectory of, of queens as we've seen them since the Merovingians or something. What's the, what's the expansion is with the daughters, right? And, and their roles as queens as well. And um, it's, it's only a few generations. Mm -hmm. It's maybe 
a total of, of three generations, really, about a hundred years of this of this sort of approach to queenship. Um, but I think that it's really it, it helps us understand how the strategies that the rulers, Teresa, Alfonso, Rich, um, Sancho had for securing the family's hold on Portugal and securing Portugal as a separate realm from Leon. And there's there's other scholarship on other places and times in Iberia. Um, recently, uh, there's a, a book by Lucy Pick called Her Father's Daughter, which is about earlier Leonese queens and um, and royal daughters. They're not so much called queens, but they have this incredible power. They advise the king. They are religious um, authorities. Mm-hmm. Uh, they own their economic powerhouses. You know, they're 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 doing things that are helping me understand why the Portuguese thought that they could do this with their daughters. So um, then as we talk about this period after these these three generations mm-hmm. of this kind of expanded power, the shift away from that seems to be um, part of just kind of the political dynamics at that time. But do you think that it also has to do with changes in uh, governance and gender roles as we move into this kind of late medieval period? Um, Yes, I think, and it's not, that's really not my area, uh-huh. you know, I mean, I feel pretty comfortable in the 11th and 12th, 12th and 13th centuries, uh, later I've become a little less certain, but I, my un, my feeling is that, and, and we see this, again, comparatively, it's really helpful to look at other places, so for example, France, um, as governments become more professionalized, and as you bring in career uh, bureaucrats, for example, um, secular men working at court, managing the uh, it, managing the treasury or or managing the, the the diplomatic functions of the court and things like that. You can see that women are um, excluded, right? That they don't have they don't have that necessary role to play anymore. And you can see this in other areas. You can see this in the practice of medicine, for example, as it becomes professionalized. There's less role for women. Those mm-hmm. kinds of things. So um, I think that those structures are changing in the way that the, the way that the government operates in Portugal and other places in Iberia. You also have the end of the wars against the Muslims who held the southern part of of the peninsula, and Portugal becomes sort of it, it takes its final form physically, right? Its final geographic form, and. I'm not sure, but I think that that also probably has some effect on the role of the queen um, as the, the military expeditions of the medieval kings have are changing. And I, I don't know what that is, but I think that that has to have had an effect on it because it's about the same time, the middle of the 13th century, when, when that's pretty much wrapped up for the Portuguese. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm thinking about that. I'm, I'm, I'll be exploring that a little bit. Okay, great. Yeah, yeah. yeah well, um, thank you so much for coming on this program because I think this has been a really fascinating story about these uh, medieval queens that probably a lot of people didn't know about. And <laughs> we'll all be looking forward to hear what more you discover about it. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Historias. For additional information about our guest and a list of suggested readings, please visit our website at historiaspodcast.org. Also be sure to subscribe on iTunes or Google Play 
and to follow us on Facebook or Twitter so that you can be notified of new episodes.